Thank you for tuning in. Thank you for listening. I am your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you are in the right place. My guest this episode is a former collegiate and professional basketball player who spent several years in the medical sales industry, who is now helping others achieve an elite mindset, a leadership, and a culture of consistency required to reach success that they're after. He's all about educating, empowering, and energizing. Of course, you can see why I had him on this podcast. Please welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Todd Setner. Todd. Tyler, I'm doing great, man. I appreciate you having me. Super pumped to be here. Yeah, excited to have you. I guess first to kind of give us a, a listeners a, a little background, um, you know, kind of what led you into the work you do on, on your journey and then, yeah, expand a little bit to our listeners uh, about the work that you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, to get right into it, I, I, was, um, I was in the med device world for about 17 years and we could talk about that and what I did before. I was I was overseas playing pro basketball, and, and that was kind of my life for a while. But when I was in the med device world, I'll never forget, I was in Las Vegas. We had a speaker come in that day, and he was a former Navy SEAL. His name is Sean Haggerty. And Sean got done speaking. And uh, when he got done, there's about 3,500 people. And they said, hey, Sean's going to go to the room next door. I think we're at the, um, the Venetian or, or somewhere over there. He said, Sean's going to go to a smaller room, do some Q&A for anyone that wants to go over there and talk a little bit more to Sean. As embarrassing as it was, it was a cool situation for me because I was the only person of 3,500 to go into this room. It's crazy. So now I got Sean and I, this former Navy SEAL who worked with, you know, uh, Marcus Luttrell, Chris Kyle, um, all of these these SEALs that are well-renowned now. Yeah. And he was the coolest guy, man. And I never forget it. He said, um, he was telling me about his first free fall. In his first free-for-all, he tried to pull the shoot, um, basically rupture his shoulder, um, couldn't get his arm back up. He popped the bone out of place, dislocated it, and he was almost going to die in training. He was able to get the emergency shoot out with his other hand, his offhand. And in any event, when he was telling me this story, I'm like, hey, man, I- I'm super afraid of heights. And he looked at me with his eyes. He's like, what? I go, yeah, I can't do heights. He goes, come here, check it this out. We went and looked out the window, and we were looking at the Stratosphere building. 112 story, largest free fall. They've got, you can go to the top of the stratosphere in Vegas and jump off in a harness. He goes, we're going to grab some beers. I'm going to move my flight to tomorrow. I just met this guy. (laughs) And he goes, we're going to jump off the stratosphere building tonight. I'm like, oh my God, we did it at midnight, him and I. And it was an amazing experience. And we became super good friends. And um, he asked me to come out and do a talk. I've never done a, a paid talk. I didn't have the business at that point. I was still in med device and I did a talk for general healthcare in San Diego with Sean. And I remember leaving that talk and I got, I got a lot of compliments. I got a lot of people asking for my business card and I'm like, I don't do this for a living. And everyone was like, well, you should. And it was in that moment on a six hour flight from California back to New York. I'm like, I need to figure out what are people's pain points? How can I monetize it? And how can I get up on stage and speak right. about it? And here we are five years later. Got it. I want to ask you a few questions about that story. Um, one, it's crazy that, I, you know, you would think some, a few other people might trickle over for some Q and a, uh, with that level kind of guest. Um, but what, what did that, you know, going from 
admitting to him, you know, hey, I'm scared of heights to, you know, doing that jump. I, I did one of those rides on top of the stratosphere when I was a younger many years ago. Um, it, it felt like you're just being shot off into space. I can imagine jumping down off it. Um, but yeah, what did that teach you in going from that and that so quickly? And then also kind of in context, I think, you know, we got to lean into our fears, we're always told. But I always feel like it helps if we can lean in. And there's also someone like that that'll help pull you and lead you a little bit. It's, it makes it a lot easier to lean in when there's some a, a trusty person there. Can you talk That's about some sure. of that? Yeah. Well, it's one of the reasons why I do what I do today as a mental performance coach is because people need that accountability partner. And um, I got up to the top of the building for anyone that, that's listening, that's ever done it, the, the top floor, as you walk out to where you jump off, it's all glass. So as you look down, you can see all of Las Vegas and you can see the 112 stories. I was frozen up there, man. I think the best thing that happened to me, there's two things. One, I was with a Navy SEAL and I'm not going to say no to a Navy SEAL. And number two, he went first. So I just kept thinking, man, I can't ask this lady who's putting the harness on me that I can't tell her I'm going to bow out. Please walk me back to the elevator. Let's go down 112 stories and send me out the front door to meet Sean. Like, I just can't do that. And so that's what I kept in my mind is like, he's already down there. He's already safe. You know, let me do it. And this was not a, this is you jump off and you're free falling for the first 100, 100 floors. The last mm -hmm. 20 or so or 12, all of a sudden the bungee kicks in and it bunches you back up and then you go down until you land on your feet so you're you look like you're just going to get splattered on a pavement it's a pretty frightful thing man but um i did it yeah. and i do it again because i overcame my fear that day you conquered it i, I love it um it, and you know i know uh about your basketball career uh kind of mm -hmm. going back into that you know this is a lot of student athletes and coaches that listen to this um you know, is there a, a coach, you know, along that basketball journey that, that kind of stuck out that maybe, uh, you know, impacted you more than just on the court? Yeah, for sure. Uh, his name is my father. <laughs> so my dad was a um, he was a high school basketball coach for 30 years. Um, of course, I got a chance to play for him for four years on a varsity level. That was from uh, 1993 to 1990 or 1992 to 96. And um, it was an incredible four years. We had um, one of the winningest programs in Amsterdam high school history. Amsterdam is about 30 miles west of um, Albany, New York. And uh, my dad's one of the winningest coaches in New York state history. So I had a superior um, coach mentor that I could not only learn from on the court, but I came home to and lived under his roof. Um, still doing well, almost 80 years old and, and still into the game and loves it. So it's been an incredible journey with him. Uh, he went on to watch me play as I signed uh, uh, the University of Albany, which was transitioning into the, the Division One era. Okay. I was one of the first uh, Division One recruiting classes, and I got a chance to uh, to play four years at U Albany on, on full athletic scholarship and um, a four-year starter there as well. So it was cool because Albany to Amsterdam is only, like I said, 30 minutes. So my dad was able to continue to coach the program at Amsterdam High School while watching his son play at U Albany. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Talk, yeah, I just kind of mentioned there, you know, in an indirect way, you know, proximity was great to have um, a lot of kids when they're looking at kind of those college choices. Um, mm -hmm. I'm sure there was some risk too. you're like, right, you know, this brand new kind of school kind of entering this thing, there's a little more pressure there. Uh, what were some of the key factors that you did kind of look for in, in kind of that next step in playing at college? 
Yeah, a couple of things. One is, you know, I, I had a pretty good list. It was, it was crazy, too, because I had a list of some majors like Tennessee. Um, I remember Tennessee, Weber State, uh, Niagara, most of the MAC schools, America East schools, a lot of Division II schools. Um, there's two things I thought about. The coaching staff that's recruiting me and where's the program going, right? What does it look like? And, um, you know, everyone says to me in hindsight, now that I'm 45 years old, when I hear this story, they say, why didn't you go to Tennessee, SEC basketball? Well, the coach at the time, um, he was actually leaving Tennessee to go to coach in the NBA. And so I thought that's not a good scenario. A guy that was going to bring me in is now going to leave. I'm not even going to get a chance to play for him. And who knows who comes in and brings his own guys. I'm pretty far from home. My parents can't and my family can't see me play. And so the idea behind U Albany was at the time they had a coach there. His name was Doc Sowers. Um, actually he's still alive in his late nineties. Wow. He was 70 years old at the time he recruited me and he had his 41st season at U Albany with over 700 wins. And so, uh, he came to every high school game I I've ever played. It, it was incredible along with his staff. And so doc really was the guy that made me a believer to say, Hey, I might not be here the entire time as we transition to division one, but I will be here at least for your freshman year. And he, he stayed true to his word. He was there for my freshman year, and then they brought in Scott Hicks, who came from Lemoyne, and then ultimately coached under Bayheim at Syracuse. So I had a tremendous four years at Albany with two great coaches. Nice. Um, one of the quotes it, it I think is on your website that I, I liked. I wanted to talk about because um, I think you know, especially today's society, get people get caught in comparison traps, especially in their athletic careers and their journey sometimes of where they're at. And uh, it was a quote about uh, many paths to success, but there's even more towards failure. Um, can you talk about, I think for, for kids listening that, you know, there's a variety of ways to to reach hopefully your, your goals. There isn't just one set path and you know that it is kind of on you to kind of figure that path out. And uh, if you don't, you're going to find those other ones that are a plenty to lead you to failure. Yeah. Hey, look, man, everyone's worried about the outcome. Everyone's worried about, you know, it's great to set goals. It's great to have that, that, that outcome that's out here that you want to get to and want to achieve. But oftentimes we forget about the process. What are we going to do every step of the way to show up every day to get closer to the outcome? I tell this story all the time. My life changed in two seconds. I'll never forget it. Our last game ever as a senior at UAlbany was against Colgate University on their home court. It was one of the best games I've ever played in my four years at UAlbany. Triple-double. We beat them on North, their court. They had some fantastic players. A couple went to the NBA. That night, we went back to Albany. We partied. It was the last game of my co collegiate career. I knew I had a gap before I got into any pro camps. Had to get an agent. The next morning at 6.34 in the morning, my assistant coach calls my dorm room. This is in 2000. There's no cell phones at that point. I answer it in my dorm room. Had a few drinks the night before. It's 6.30 in the morning. I said, coach, what's up? He said, the lead scout for the New York Knicks is on campus and wants to work you out right now. Oh, great. Like, oh, my God. So at the time, we were, Gatorade was really big. I went to the fridge. I got Gatorade, getting electrolytes. I'm getting hydrated. I'm changing. I sprint down to the rack, which is our on-campus arena. And the guy, his name was actually Jeff Nix. His, his last name was spelled N-I-X, right. although he worked for the Knicks. <laughs> he said, all right, Todd, we're going to open up with a with a sideline to sideline shooting drill. You go to one sideline, you touch the line, you come off a simulated screen, catch and shoot at the collegiate, uh, collegiate three-point line. 
touch the other sideline, do the same thing. I did this for about three minutes. He goes, all right, stop. Good job. He says, I'm going to move you back now from 19.9, which is the college line, the 22 feet NBA line. Let's do the same drill. I went to the one side, took a shot. I went to the other side. I took a shot and he stopped me again. He goes, look, son, I like you. You're a great player, but you'll never make the NBA. Good luck to you. Mm-hmm. That was it. I said, coach, what just happened? He said, Todd, you're six foot tall. And when I backed you up to the NBA three-point line, your release point from here went to here. He said, you dropped about two inches and you'll never get that off in the NBA, particularly when you get into the third and fourth quarter. You're, 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 you want to further your career? It'll be in Europe and you'll have a great career. And that was it, man. Wow. So my point in, in telling the story when you asked that question is, I could have folded right then and there. I just had an unbelievable four years in high school, a better four years in college. My goal my entire life was to make the NBA, and he shattered it in about 10 seconds. But I've always been a guy that never worried about the outcome because all the work that I put in over the years since I was a kid, that wasn't going to stop me. I was My goal was to get paid to play the game I love, and that sent me to Europe for six years, yeah. and I had another tremendous career at that level. Yeah. I had a, a friend that uh, was a former Oregon coach, Mike Bellotti. He he met him after a camp and they shook hands and he just pulled his hand closer, flipped it over. And he goes, yeah, you're a good looking athlete, but you're done growing. <laughs> you know, he was like just stunned. He was like, what? You know, um, it, you know, it's interesting sometimes as coaches, you know how that but it, it shows, you know, sometimes how fine the, those lines are of of just, you know, the the levels, especially when you get to the beyond college, you know how many people have those opportunities and be great. Um, But yeah, I I love that quote. Um, One of the things, uh, you know, in your work, uh, when you're talking about too, I know you got some uh, master class coming out. Tell us a little bit about that. And and I guess, because my question was, you know, what what are some of the things and skills that you love to teach the most that that gets you fired up? Yeah. So to me, when I built the, the content, going back to that flight back from California to New York, what I realized, right, I've always been a guy that studied successful people. And I'm talking about like the highest of high performers on the planet. Like, why are they, why did these people make it when other people didn't, right? There are people talk about sports. There's people in the NBA, NFL that never made it that are probably better than some of our superstars, yeah. right? And, and and I remember Harold Miner. He was considered the next baby Jordan. Yeah. If I mentioned Harold Miner to 90% of the people, they'd say, who is that guy? But everyone knows Michael Jordan. Yeah. So I've always been someone that that studied these people. Let's talk about it for a minute. When you talk about sports, I studied Jordan, Tiger, Serena, um, Federer, Brady, Ali, Vaughn, right? The list goes on and on. How did they close the gap from where they are to where they want to be and separate themselves from every other professional? When I got into the corporate world, I was beating on a new craft. I needed to learn about business acumen, business leadership, things like that. And again, politics aside, but I studied people that had buckets of success. Mm. Bezos, Gates, Jobs, Zuckerberg, Musk, Oprah, Itzler. Mm. How did these people close the gap? Mm. And Tyler, here's what's crazy, man. After all these years, and you can see these books behind me, I'm an avid reader. And when I read it, it takes me forever because I'm always underlining and Mm. writing in the margins. I said, you know what? I'm going to take every book person I've ever studied, every book I've ever read, and I'm going to take the things I wrote in the book and I'm going to throw it into a Google Doc. I did this six years ago. It took me six months, almost seven months to do it. When I got done doing that, what I realized was there's a common theme 
between all of these successful people? Three things. They had a different level mindset. They had exceptional leadership skills. And they understood how to build the right culture, the right environment to give them the best chance to win. So I thought, man, I got it. They're getting elite level results. I'm going to call this the three pillars of elite results. And that's the book that I wrote. It's an inspirational storybook, loosely based on the characters, loosely based on myself. I thought, okay, I know where they're at, but how did they get there? And as I kept delving into the research of all the things I, I put in a Google Doc, I realized that there are 24 skills that they mastered. And so what I did is I took the 24 skills and I figured out where they fit under pillar one mindset, pillar two leadership, and pillar three culture. And these 24 skills, I ended up putting into this 240-page training manual. And when I go out and do team consulting, keynote speaking, or one-on-one coaching, we basically navigate through those 24 skills to help people get elite level results in their career, both personally and professionally. And so when you talk about what do I enjoy talking about the most, it's always around those three pillars. But if I were to be specific, I chose pillar one as mindset for a reason, because I always say, you know, I'm six, six foot tall. So I say the six inches between my ears dictate the six feet below. Yeah. And it's so true, man. I launched this company in the middle of a pandemic and that's when people needed it the most, sure. how to get your mind and body right. And uh, basically what I talk about every day is it's not what happens to you in life. It's how you handle it. So I, I you know, love that, you know, starting with the mindset, because it's, uh, I think I always, mindset is going to lead to your skill set. And it's, you know, what do you have a great skill set around that you have a poor mindset around? Usually not much, or that's just called a gift, right? Something, and if you don't know how to use that gift, what's it worth? And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, the next thing, because that's what I wanted to talk about, those three core things. Can you talk about just a little bit how, you know, I think we hear, you know, those things in certain places and they're like, Oh yeah, they're cliche, right? We need culture and leadership and mindset. Um, and usually that comes from a space of people that lack the understanding and intentions of them. But, um, can you talk a little bit about how they overlap and how, you know, you talk about breaking down those skills. Um, but I'm at, you know, from my experience, you know, who's leading the culture, what's that mindset of that leader, uh, is gonna, you know, dictate direction and outcomes a little bit. And even the process, of course. Well, your question makes me think of two things. One is how do they overlap? First of all, in order to great be a great leader, you got to be able to lead yourself. In order to lead yourself, you better have the right mindset. Mm-hmm. So those eight skills under mindset, which some of them are, let's focus on the process, not the outcome, as I mentioned. What are your routines and habits of excellence? Do you have time management and energy management skill set? What is your emotional intelligence skill set? How do you prepare and what are your mental rehearsals when it comes to your career, your personal life, your relationships, or your goals? That's all mindset. Once you master that, and when I say the word master, I think about sports. You can't master something without doing the drills to build the skills to obtain the skill set. When you get the skill set around mindset where you know that it's not what happens to you, it's how you handle it, you'll never have a bad day again. Because every time adversity hits you, you're going to have a strategy to deliver back, right? Then you work on leadership. I've created the eight C's of leadership. Some of them are how you're connecting with people. What is your clarity around your your goals? Uh, What is your competence level and the things you want to accomplish, right? Those are some of the C's. And under culture, you got MVP process, mission, vision, and principles. And then the other part of it, I use an acronym called trust we don't have like what is 
And what are your non-negotiables in life? Things like that. And so all three of these kind of come together and mesh into obtaining elite level results, right? So I think that's where these three come together. And I have people that come to me and say, hey, I need a, my organization needs a foundation on all three. Great, let's do it. Someone might say, we're really focused on the outcome. Can you just talk about mindset and how to worry about the process? No problem. We'll go really deep into that. And so that's the areas where I really, really try to dive into. Love it. Um, you know, one of the things, you know, thinking about your basketball career uh, and going back, I love the story about your father as the coach. Uh, if you could go back into a time machine and, and visit teenage Todd, um, what, what piece of advice, especially, you know, all the things in the work that you've done, um, you know, uh, what would you want to tell 16 year old self if you could? I would say, uh, I would say life is hard. And if you can just focus on the things you can control and not worry about the things you can't control, um, it would, it would probably relieve a lot of stress, uh, anxiety, um, energy, most importantly, energy. Um, I'm, I'm not an overly anxious or, or stressful guy, but when, when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, I have two girls now that are young. That's something I'm going to teach them is look at, there are so many adversities and challenges and obstacles in life from a day to day, whether it's people talking about you, people being negative. Um, you know, we just went through a global pandemic, as I mentioned, you, you got shootings, you got crazy stuff going on. Yeah. The more you focus on that, the more you're going to drive your energy level down, right? So my goal has always been, there's two types of people in this world, lifters and leaners. And my, my goal for my girls, they're young, two and four years old, is to be a lifter. It's to be an energy giver, not an energy taker. Yeah. And so if I were to go back and talk to me in middle school and high school, I would just say, hey, man, wake up every day like it's your last. Wake up every day with a smile on your face, understanding that energy is a choice confidence is a choice my attitude is a decision and all those things put together will determine my destiny and not let bad moments become bad days because of some external factor that had no bearing on me there's a great quote that everyone knows it says if it won't matter in five years don't spend five minutes thinking about it yeah. i wish i knew that 25 years ago yeah me too i think still still practical uh as we age sometimes <laughs> right make sure we don't get Drift into those uncontrollables. I wanted to drift back to what you talked about leadership because I think um, just in a recent discussion I was having with some other some colleagues, we you know when it comes to kind of that student athlete space, you know, either it's high school, sometimes it's the the college age, and maybe they're elected captain for the first time, and then they're hey we need you got elected, and now the coach tells them hey we need you to lead. Uh, a lot of kids and former athletes kind of you know kind of oh that I've been in that situation, um, and then I, I think you know the Often the kids, you know, look outside to how do I lead these people where, you know, just like you talk, how do we lead ourselves? And I think, can you talk about just that dynamic of, uh, you know, when you, maybe a student athlete is asked to lead, what is a way that they can, you know, hold themselves accountable so that maybe externally they are hopefully providing leadership to those around them? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you a story going back to my dad for a minute that taught me a leadership lesson at a super yeah. young I had a hoop behind my house up on a hill. So it was a half court hoop. We had a light. I remember I was one of the first people in our small town to have a glass backboard. The square was the Chicago Bulls emblem because I was a big Jordan fan. All my buddies were up there. I was six, seven, eight years old. And I remember my dad coming out of the back door, looking up at us. And he says, hey, boys, 
you got to go home, Todd, you got to come in for dinner. So the guys came down and uh, at this time I'm, I'm, I'm dating myself, but we didn't have water bottles. You go to the side of the house, you turn the hose on and you'd drink yeah. the water. Yeah. So all the guys took a sip, right? And I went last and everyone's saying goodbye. And uh, I took a sip of the water and I threw the hose on the grass. And my dad goes, where are you going? I go, what do you mean? You just told me to come in for dinner. He said, put the hose back. I said, dad, I'll get it tomorrow. He said, Todd, put the hose back. I said, dad, come on. What's the big deal? I'll get it tomorrow. I was already walking away. He said, Todd, what is the conversation you had with me a week ago? We were sitting on the couch watching the NBA. What was that conversation? What did you want to be? What'd you tell me? I said, I want to play in the NBA. He said, what'd you say after that? I said, oh, well, I want to play in college. I want to get a division one scholarship. He goes, Todd, if you can't put that hose back, you're not going to earn a division one scholarship because how you do anything is how you do everything. And if you cut corners on that hose right there, by just simply putting it back where you found it, you're going to cut corners in practice, in the classroom, in your relationships, and ultimately in your career. Put the hose back. Mm. And of course, I, I clearly remembered that lesson so many years be beyond because I now teach that back as part of my curriculum. It's like when you ask the question, how do these young kids who become a new captain lead? They lead by, by doing, not by saying or telling. Right. The minute you put a uniform on in high school, I don't care what sport, college, there's only 10 to 12 kids in a uniform within that university or that district. Yeah. Everyone knows who you are. So you need to do the right thing all the time. And you do the right thing by doing, not saying. And that would be my first advice for anyone that jumps into a captain role or anyone that's on a team. And last question is we, we kind of close up here. Um, I know I can feel Todd's passion and energy. It's got me, <laughs> got me pumped for this day. Um, what uh, in your work, you know, you talked about, you know, your career before and, you know, obviously we focused on, on what you're doing now, but in, in the work you do now and the coaching and the speaking, uh, what brings you the most joy and fulfillment in the work you do? Serving, serving, man. I got into this and I say it all the time. It's, um, it's it's super cool. You know, all these years when I got on a basketball court and I performed, it was for the team, right? I was trying to serve the team in order for us to win games, common goal. But don't think for one second, anyone that doesn't get on a field or a court or wherever, a, a diamond, they're not thinking about people watching them and walking off and everyone praising them, right? There's just that endorphin and serotonin and oxytocin hormone rays, right? We all feel that as athletes. And even when I was in the corporate world, I was a corporate leader. I was managing $400 million. I had a team underneath me. I wanted to do what was right so they could say, oh, Todd was one of the best leaders we've ever had. There's a part of that. Well, now as a coach, whether people are walking into my office here or I'm getting on stage speaking to hundreds or thousands of people, I want them to leave and say, man, that was life-changing. And it's not about Todd Setner. I've taken everything I've ever learned from every coach that's coached me I've made it my own and now I'm serving back to try to make impact. And so to me, uh, that's what gets me up every day and kind of lights a fire in my stomach to go out there and serve people and make the greatest impact I can because uh, the world needs it, man. There's a lot, a lot of negative stuff going on.